As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Half a century after the landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. Abortion opponents are celebrating. This is amazing. It's a very, very exciting day for us. While supporters of abortion rights are reeling. It hit everybody in in the stomach like a wrecking ball. It's a kick in the gut for sure. Rape, incest, I mean, that's disgusting that we would have to put young girls through that. U.S. Supreme Court returns regulation of abortion to the states. Half the people in our state now have fewer rights than they did four days ago. On this week's Open Record, what that means. This law was passed well before women had the right to vote. For Wisconsin. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 30th, 2022. And we're here this week with Fox 6 political reporter Jason Calvi. Hey, Jason. Hey, guys. It's been nearly a week since the U.S. Supreme Court's 6-3 decision in Dobbs v. Jackson, holding that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, returning the authority to regulate abortion to the states. This decision overturns the landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, and that held state restrictions on abortion violated a woman's constitutional right to privacy. So on this week's episode of Open Record, we're going to talk about the impact of this ruling, the emotional, the political, the legal fallout, and specifically what this means for the state of Wisconsin. But first, we're going to start by just pointing out something that may seem obvious, but this is a very sensitive issue with a lot of strong feelings. And it's something that we've been talking about as a newsroom, making sure we're responsible with with our journalism, because there's a lot of polling that shows most of the country has uh, some pretty nuanced views on the issue of abortion. And what happens when we do stories, especially because we're limited for time, we're turning stories on tight deadlines, you go to the people who you know are going to represent, quote, both sides of the issues. And that tends to represent the extremes. And that's what happens in media coverage kind of by default. And it takes a lot of effort to get away from that. So there's a lot of work that journalists are doing right now to make sure we better reflect where the country stands on the issue and knowing too that this isn't a a monolith. I, I know I've been having a lot of conversations with the women in my life lately and I'm I'm hearing a lot of different perspectives. I have people very close to me who are very much against abortion gone to the March for Life every year, um, 
believe that life begins at conception and believe that they are protecting life. I also have women very close to me who have had abortions. Um, In some cases, because their own lives were at risk, and in some cases, not. And these conversations right now are emotional and difficult and filled with everyone's own life experiences. And I just think we should start out by acknowledging that, um, that what we're talking about isn't just a legal thing. It's not just a political thing. Um, People on all sides of the issue, to them, it's about rights, whether you believe it's the rights of women or the rights of the unborn. That's what this comes down to, and that's why this is so deeply personal for so many people. Amanda, not just that these are about rights. They're, They're rights that, from whatever perspective you come from, may seem so fundamental that they're at at a person's core. You talked about the sort of nuances in this. And when and you're right, there are the extremes get they have the loudest voices um, and sometimes maybe the strongest feelings. Uh, but if you look at polling on this, Pew Research uh, had done a poll in March. Uh, they surveyed U.S. adults two months before the leak of the Dobbs ruling had come out. That was in May. So this this was even before anyone really knew for sure what was about to happen. At that time, 19% of U.S. adults surveyed said that abortion should be legal in all cases. 19%. 8% said it should be illegal in all cases. That's about a quarter of Americans, slightly more than a quarter of Americans, who had a firm it should always be legal or it should always be illegal. Everybody else was somewhere in the middle. Somewhere along the way... They believe there should be some level of restriction. Somewhere along the way, they believe it should be legal in some form. So there's there's a lot of gray area. And I think what you pointed out there is in this business, we tend to be like moths to a flame. There's a protest. There's a loud voice. That's where we go. And it makes sense that we do. But it's important to recognize, and this is a great forum for that, that there's an awful lot in the middle that isn't on one extreme or the other. You know, Marquette University, their law school did a poll uh, just back in June. Uh, so that was after uh, after the Roe v. Wade leak was out there. So this was, you know, making headlines and people were and this was a poll of Wisconsin voters. And they asked about the legality of abortion. And it lined up with what you what you just mentioned, Brian, uh, you know, what there, there's the, the middle. But but, so the, you know, when they asked, you know, do you think le- abortion should be legal in all cases? It was 27 percent. Illegal in all cases, 11%. This is Wisconsin voters. And then in the middle, the legal in most cases and the illegal in most cases was, was again, in the middle, uh, 31% most cases legal and 24% illegal most cases. So you can see, again, that middle uh, right there in the Marquette poll from June. Well, and I just had a conversation with a friend, and I think over you know the next few months, we're going to be seeing some of the practical implications Um, But she was very concerned about the um, what she sees as the unintended consequences on miscarriage um, because she's had miscarriages and the procedure that you have to pass a miscarriage is called a DNC. It's also the procedure used in surgical abortion and the drugs you use to pass a miscarriage are also drugs you would use in a medical abortion. And so depending on what state you're in, I think right now there are a lot of question marks. And the issue with 
question marks is in the time it takes for doctors to figure out what they're allowed to do or what they're not allowed to do, that could be the difference between life and death. You, you, you could, if there's something going wrong, you could die if you don't have that procedure or that drug when you're having a miscarriage. And so those are some of the questions I think we're going to see unravel. Um, I, I've talked to people about family planning and how they feel about that. Um, one of a very close friend of mine um, is weighing, you know, is it too risky for me to get pregnant if something, she's had some complicated pregnancies. If something happens, you know, is it is it more likely that I'm going to die and, and my child that I, I have right now won't have me? So these are the things that people are weighing right now. So I think sometimes when we talk about abortion, uh, depending on what side of the issue you're on, you have one thing in your mind, but people are coming at this from very different perspectives, given their life experiences. But in these questions about the fallout, that naturally brings us to Wisconsin. So Jason, in your political reporting, I'd like to hear your rundown of what we know so far about what the, the practical implications of this ruling are on the Badger State. So immediately there was a, a, a law, an abortion ban on the books from 1849. That it was a Wisconsin law. It's, a, it's stayed on the books. But because of Roe v. Wade, um, this abortion ban was unenforceable. Abortions were legal. This restriction, this abortion ban from 1849 for the Badger State was pretty much shelved, even though it stayed on the books. Um, so as soon as Roe v. Wade was overruled on Friday, uh, the abortion clinics, there's four of them in, in Wisconsin, they all stopped doing abortions. There's two in Milwaukee, one in Dane County, and then there's one in Sheboygan County. And all four of them stopped doing abortions. And because of this law, because of this ban on the books, now there is debate about whether that ban is still enforceable. And the attorney general, Josh Call, has actually filed a lawsuit just this week challenging that and asking a judge to rule that that old law is no longer enforceable. And we can get into the legal, uh, the legal arguments he's making and the legal arguments that the opponents are making if you'd like. Um, but, but for right now, abortions have stopped in Wisconsin. No, no uh, abortions are taking place because of that old ban. There's still debates about how that's going to play out. And there's also debates about how it's playing out and it is playing out in the debate over elections. So we have a big, we have two statewide, well actually have three big statewide elections that all play a part in abortion's future in Wisconsin. Uh, one of them is the governor's race. Uh, the other is the attorney general's race. And, and then we also have a U.S. Senate race where the U.S. Senate is, you know, potentially um, could could make could could move to uh, there's been moves in the House and then there was a, a vote in the Senate that did not pass to enshrine uh, abortion rights in into law uh, it actually goes a lot farther than Roe v Wade um, people you know the term you heard was that they want to codify Roe v. Wade, but really it went farther than that. It would actually get rid of a lot of state-level restrictions that are currently in place and have been allowed under Roe v. Wade. Um, this would expand abortion um, 
through Congress, um, but that law failed in, in the United States Senate. So again, we have these big races in the state of Wisconsin. This is a battleground state. It's a state that in the past has been 50-50 on, on governors and presidential races. It could go either way, and it has gone either way in many, many uh, very close elections where they've been decided by less than one percentage point. Um, so we're going to see this, and we are seeing this play out in these big races here in Wisconsin that will be taking place in November. Jace, t- talking about what is happening in Wisconsin, I think, requires a quick step back and looking at sort of the, the, the history of, of this issue, because if you go back to 1973 in Roe v. Wade, um, th- that court held that the Constitution provides this fundamental right to privacy. But the Roe decision still allowed some regulation of abortion, particularly in what it set up the trimester system. There was essentially no regulation. It was an absolute right to an abortion in the first trimester, some regulation allowed in the second, and essentially full restriction allowed in the last trimester unless uh, it was necessary to save the mother's life. 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there were some changes there. They eliminated this whole trimester framework and instead set up the viability analysis. When is a fetus viable and, and setting up full restriction on abortions pre-viability and setting up a whole new legal standard of undue burden. It was unconstitutional to restrict or, or to set up any conditions that, that placed an undue burden on a woman seeking an abortion. This decision in the Dobbs ruling by the, by the Supreme Court now, by putting things back to the states... It depends what state you are in as to the practical impact in the short term. There are states where it remains perfectly legal to get an abortion. Wisconsin is one of those states where not only is there some question about that, obviously there's a legal challenge to this, but if that 1849 law takes effect, it actually swings the pendulum far beyond what even Roe had set up, uh, which is to say that there, there are no protections at all. Essentially, it's it's an outright ban on abortions. Am I right? So I mean, that, this really swings the pendulum completely, whereas maybe other states, it's not that immediate an effect. Here, we're going all the way the other direction. Is that right? Right. I mean, in that 1849 law, it does allow uh, one ex- exception, and that's to save the life of the mother. Um, so so it, it is not a complete ban. But it makes no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. It doesn't have any conditions in terms of viability, correct? Right. Yeah, this is, this is uh, immediate. And then that's what the attorney general uh, – and again, for all intents and purposes, this, this – this abortion ban is being considered on the books. That's why you're seeing all four of the abortion clinics stop stop doing abortions because until that judge comes out and says this law is unenforceable, um, they're they're assuming right now that right now they have to follow that. They don't want to have their doctors or or um, per, uh, health health workers. Um, Charge now. We do know that district attorneys in various counties that are impacted that have abortion clinics um, are are taking different stands. So the district attorney in Sheboygan County is saying yes. Right now, he would prosecute somebody for violating this 1849 abortion ban. He did tell me yesterday. We spoke over the phone, and he did say, uh, however, if you know, this lawsuit that the attorney general has filed, if it's successful and, and a court does rule that the 1849 law is unenforceable, then he will not prosecute. But right now he says he would prosecute, whereas the two other district attorneys, in, the one in Milwaukee County and the one in Dane County, say uh, that they're not going to prosecute. And the attorney general as well saying he's not going to help with prosecutions uh, of that uh, 1849 abortion ban. So you can see how the district attorneys are taking different stands on this particular issue of enforceability right now. Well, and I think we have the the legal effect and the practical effect, right? So um, I was talking to a former colleague 
who is pregnant, um, but also just found out she has cancer. And she's basically dealing with this decision right now. You know, do I get an abortion and start chemo right away? Um, Do I hold off? And, And that's something she's struggling with. But her and she right now lives in a state that um, has an abortion ban, except for cases in which there's a danger to the mother's life. But her, the reading of the law is it that the pregnancy itself has to threaten the mother's life. In this case, cancer is threatening the mother's life. And so her doctors are confused about what the fallout is. And when there's that confusion, especially when you're talking criminal repercussions, when you're talking losing your license, they're going to err on the side of, we're not going to do it. So she's in a situation where if she has to get an abortion, she'd probably have to go to a different state because she can't get a clear answer because there are still things that are getting figured out. So even when you have certainty that a ban is on the books, there are still some question marks. And that, I think, is something we're going to see really play out here. Um, I know, Jason, you mentioned the legal arguments of specifically the challenge to Wisconsin's abortion ban. So, so what are the legal grounds that the attorney general is citing in filing a lawsuit on that? And then um, what's the other perspective on that? Because I know that there are um, lawyers who do disagree with him. Sure. Yeah. And so the attorney general brings up two arguments for why he's asking the judge to deem that old 1849 abortion law to be unenforceable. The first is that there have been subsequent laws in Wisconsin that have allowed abortion. So for example, in in 1985, there there was a a ban on abortions only after viability. Um, So the, the attorney general is saying, well, hey, wait a minute, that conflicts with the 1849 ban, which did did not allow abortions at all. So he's saying when there's a conflict between an old law and a new law, that the new law takes precedence and supersedes the old law. Um, that That's one of the arguments. The second argument is that it's been decades that this law has not been enforced. So again, he's bringing that to a judge in Dane County, asking the, the Dane County court to, um, to deem that this law is unenforceable. Now, uh, pro-life Wisconsin uh, is telling me that there is case law in Wisconsin that uh, says in order for that old law to be repealed, it, there's no implied, it has to be explicit. He has to, that, 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 the, that the reason why those lawmakers in 1985 banned abortion after viability was they were trying to follow Roe v. Wade. And so he's saying they did not explicitly repeal or replace the old abortion ban, that abortion ban is still on the books, but that 1985 viability uh, ban was uh, was only to take into account Roe v. Wade. So again, these are some of the legal arguments that are going to be playing out in court. Right now, everybody is is working under uh, the the uh, idea that uh, that abortion ban is on the books until until there's more clarity from from the courts here in Wisconsin. And obviously, Jason, that clarity is going to have a lot of meaning as to where this goes politically going forward, because ultimately then it would be left to lawmakers and the governor to determine what happens in the state if something needs to change based on what that interpretation is. And, and I, I think 
that's where where the place where each state starts is important because if you're in a state like Illinois or Minnesota where abortion remains legal and accessible, um, perhaps there's not as much pressure on lawmakers to take some sort of action. Um, in Wisconsin, obviously, you're in, in a place where if if there are those, and, and obviously there are those who want that to change, who want who don't want the 1849 law to be the law of, of the state, um, there has to be a political will to do something different. But the question is, we have divided government. And we've already seen Governor Evers called a special session to deal with this even before the ruling officially came out, after the leak and before the ruling and the legislature gaveled in and gaveled out. So I guess I wonder politically, short of whatever happens this fall, is there any real likelihood of some consensus? Have you heard any buzz that there is discussion of a potential consensus on this issue um, or the sides miles apart? I mean, the sides are miles apart. There, you know, Senator Ron Johnson and to, to the media, he, he said uh, he didn't expect a total ban to last after Roe v. Wade, he was. This was he was speaking before when the leak came out, but before the actual ruling was out, um, he he said he didn't expect the total ban to last. But you know, Republicans did again before the official ruling came out. They did, as you mentioned, gavel out that special session. The governor had called to uh, to pretty much scrap the old abortion ban, and and, uh, and and they had the Republicans leading the legislature had gaveled that out. Um, so. And, and also you see this playing out with, with the candidates who are trying to oust Governor Evers. Uh, you see them supporting that old uh, abortion ban. So you have people like Rebecca Clayfish and, and Tim Michaels saying they do support that, that old uh, abortion ban. But yeah, there is discussions about, uh, about what the legislature could do when they come back. But again, they're not back until January when there is a new governor elected in the state of Wisconsin. And again, every member of the assembly will be up for a vote um, this um, this November. So again, we'll see what the power shake, uh, the, the power structure is there, who, who, how the majority is uh, for the Republicans there. Um, but again, you know, how, how will this issue play out politically in, in the election? Um, when you look at the Marquette poll I'd mentioned in June, which asked uh, questions about abortion, it also asked what, what's the number one issue? Um, and, and this was in June, it was actually after the leak. So people had that uh, in, in their minds when they're when they're saying this, and the number one issue was was inflation. Uh, uh, number two, abortion policy. Number three, gun violence, and then number four, healthcare. So you saw inflation was still the top issue for for Wisconsin voters. So how will this issue of Roe v. Wade's reversal play out in the election? That's still to be seen. But as you mentioned, there's been so much emotion on this issue. We've seen protest after protest, uh, lots, lots of um, very fired up people on both sides of the issue going out and, and making their voices heard. But will that translate to, to votes and will that change possibly who wins in November? That's still to be seen. Um, and again, like I said, inflation right now, number one issue for, for Wisconsin voters. How long do we think this will take to make its way through the court system because the the courts don't have a reputation for being speedy. <laughs> and also this was filed in you know circuit court in Dane County so conceivably it could go then to to an appeals court and then or it could go immediately then after that to the to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, how long are they going to are they going to uh, take to, to weigh this issue, all to be seen. The, the attorney general is hoping that it would be, the district court would, would make a, would hear the case quickly, but 
these, as you said, these things take time and there's a lot of levels of appeal here. Um, and, and all that is still really a, a work in progress. We, we, don't, we don't know how long it's going to take. So in the meantime, then, as we talked about a little earlier, the practical effect on Wisconsin is that there are no legal abortions happening in Wisconsin. And one thing when we um, speak to the groups that advocate for abortion rights, they say that they're worried about how this could disproportionately affect women in poverty or women of color. So can you take us through what the concern is there? Right. And I, I think, you know, if you look at uh, if you look at the demographics, so every year Wisconsin has to put out a, a, a the Department of Health Services puts out an abortion report. It, it gives the numbers for, for abortion, the demographics of the people, uh, of the women getting abortions. So, for example, in 2020, there was 6,430 abortions in Wisconsin. And that number has has really decreased from, you know, looking back at some of those numbers in the in the um, early 2000s. It was, you know, in 2004, it was 9,900. Uh, in 1996, it was 13,000. So the numbers have, have really gone down in recent years. In 1980, it was 21,000. Um, and then if you look at the demographics, for abortions in, in 2020, uh, 50, 54% of the people, of the women who got abortions were, were white, uh, 34% were black. Um, so, you know, the majority of women getting abortions in, in Wisconsin are, are white women. Now, I have, I have, I, I, my understanding is while that is the case on an actual number basis, if you look per capita, in fact, it is still uh, something that is more likely to be a person of color who's seeking an abortion. So then you get into stats, statistics, but certainly the, 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 um, th- there is a, a breakdown across the board there. Right, right. Especially because in, in Wisconsin, 87% of the population is is white, right? And so if 34% of uh, if 34% of the women getting abortions in Wisconsin are black and the African-American population of the state is, you know, 6.7%, uh, you're right that the, you know, go looking at the stats there would show that uh, that there are a higher percentage of, of black women getting getting abortions than, than white women per capita, as you mentioned. So then if you have the means to travel to a state where it's legal, then you could still have access, even though there are barriers. I, I'd imagine that would be much more difficult if you if you don't have the means to go somewhere else. You know, if you have a job where you can't take that time off work or you can't coordinate that transportation, and that's where we get into the legal effects and then the practical effects um, because there are in you can travel to a state where it is legal you know we've been talking a lot about Illinois lately um, but then what's the reality of that and I think that's going to be a question we're asking for a long time and I don't know if this has been discussed I don't know what the legalities of this be but I know that Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin had posted on its website uh, just after the Dobbs decision uh, that you know they they were still open for business and they were seeking ways to help connect people with legal abortion services. You know where it was still legal. What they didn't say explicitly, and I don't know if this has been discussed, is could Planned Parenthood, for instance, provide transportation to people who otherwise can't access that? And would that be an abortion service that would be in violation of this 1849 law? I don't know if that's clear. I don't know if that's been discussed. But certainly there are questions about how to get people who otherwise. Uh, want access in other states but can't get there that kind of access. These are all the kinds of questions that are up in the air and that have sort of been thrown into chaos with this ruling. And that is a good time for us to go off the record. 
talk about switching gears here, obviously from a very serious and emotional subject to the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little bit of fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. Here to ask us that question is Open Records senior executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hey. Um, Okay, so this question came actually um, on an idea from our own Wake Up uh, anchor, Carl Deffenbaugh, who posted it on social media, and I thought it was interesting, and I thought I could pose it um, to you guys. So the question is, if you could pick one song to save for 10,000 years and share with future civilizations or aliens, what would it be? One song. I'll tell you, Carl's answer was the Beatles' Let It Be. So that was his answer. So is is when you say if you could pick one song to share, is the purpose to sort of communicate a message about civilization? Is it just like, this is a great song? This is a, a you know... I think it's your own interpretation because I I was thinking along those lines too where it's like there are songs I could save but the message would be this is everything that was wrong with our society at the time. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll I'll tell you a couple that kind of came to mind and I went in two different directions like Brian like you were kind of saying there. So I thought um, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire is a very well it's a well composed song it really gives an insight into some of the history um so i thought that was kind of interesting i also kind of went the other way and thought about the songs that were so popular like mm, i'll go 90s and early 2000s the aughts um barbie girl Ugh. what does the fox say that's the song you would share with future oh, aliens but like how weird they right would be don't you think so they'd, don't you think they'd Hit, hit play or I don't know on their little tape cassette <laughs> and then they'd be like what does the fox say you know I mean it's just so weird and then like Gangnam Style remember that song <laughs> again so oh my God. I, like I said I just them. I kind of went the I know at least but, at like, least with what does the fox say maybe if those animals don't exist in the future <laughs> generation the aliens would be like wow they had right animals that made those sounds that's interesting. Yeah, and what does the fox say? And do we have the answer 10,000 years later? So those are my picks. I have a quick story about that, by the way. When when, when that song was big, I, I remember uh, my, my son was very young, and in the car I used to sing it, What is the Fox 6? I don't know why. It's just because <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, Brian, that's going to be our new promo, our new station <laughs> what does promo. the Fox 6? I, I, and then I don't know what happens after that. <laughs> There's no more beats. Anyway, Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Hmm. Who, who has, who has a mean, song? What, what do you want to... The tough thing is I cannot... I mean, I'm usually when I'm in a car, it's with my children. So it's a combination of Frozen, Moana, and Kanto and Tangled songs that are playing. That's literally... It's like a Spotify playlist that has songs from all of those movies. So maybe the song Let It Go <laughs> to show the uh, the cultural phenomenon of the, the Disney hit being on the radio... I don't know. I'm struggling with this, but part of the problem is I have terrible taste in music. So, <laughs> like the songs, know. the songs I like to listen to, like I, I would do Mbop. Like that would be the song I would share. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, the Hanson Boys were big. <laughs> it's a bop. And that's it's right. A, it is. It's a bop. <laughs> it slaps. Um, yeah, it slaps. As the kids are yeah, the kids to say. cool. The cool kids say. I think for me, I mean, all I go, I I don't know if I want to send a particular message because there's nothing that could say everything. So I just want to go with a song that's got great range and is really singable. And they'd be like, okay, they had some, they had some good stuff back then. I think, I think it's Bohemian Rhapsody. I have my answer now and it's actually 
the same answer to the question you asked several weeks ago, which is what song would you be singing in your car with the windows down and then be really embarrassed if someone pulled up? It's all coming back to me, Celine Dion. <laughs> That's the song. <laughs> that is what that is what I would share. Oh gosh. I want to hear Jason. Celine what do you, what, what, what are you, what yeah. are you conjuring up? I mean, there? I was I played in in bands in high school and a little bit in college. Uh, so I was trying to think of. I mean, I love I love music. I just I it's a very difficult question to pick one song, and it's so so meaningful, uh, right? I mean. It's supposed to be so meaningful, except for some of the answers here. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Jason throwing shade. I like it. He will not be invited back. No, I'm just uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, What's your favorite song? Let's start there, because I have zero idea what your taste in music is. Well, um, that's I. I, can't, I would have to give you like fifteen songs. I, I don't think I could do just one favorite. Um, I'm a big what, fan. Yeah, go ahead. What station? Like, if you're listening to the radio, no. what station are you listening to? Well, no. I'm probably I'm probably <laughs> listening <laughs> probably listening to a little NPR. bit of news. I was gonna say, uh, yeah. don't tell me it's talk news, radio and don't talk, know. It's NPR. It's, uh, like I also I, 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 I no 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 I I also well I I. I also like uh, listening to books on tape when I can. Uh, <laughs> hey, Jason, I should have picked a different <laughs> story. Totally surprising a different question. Okay, yeah. give so, us some genres, though. So, uh, okay, so, I mean, I guess some of my favorite bands are, f- like, 1990s bands, like, two, like 2000 bands. Um, so, like, the bands that people probably have not heard of. So, like, the Juliana Theory is one of my favorite bands. They're kind of post, I mean, like, punkish. I can't use the word emo because emo is kind of people have a different understanding of what that is, but there's several waves of emo. Um, but, but like Juliana theory is one of my favorite bands, the, the get up kids. Um, there's probably about five people listening that, that know who those bands are, but, uh, Dave Machuda who edits this podcast probably knows who they oh, are. Oh man. Oh, so, so I, I'm trying to think of my favorite Juliana. And we, we use the Juliana theory song partially during our, our wedding dance. Uh, if you can believe that, um, but now I can't, can't, anyway, so I think oh, I would you pr- should share your wedding dance song. That would be nice. <laughs> we, we, I don't know uh, what it is, but it's a nice Well, thought. it was, it was twofold because I think my wife and I have such different tastes in music. So I think we had a Josh, we, well, I think we did. We had a Josh Groban song and then we had a Juliana Theory song. So, uh, but I also like, you know, I can listen to some, I can jam out to some classical music as well. Uh, there's some really powerful stuff out there as you well. You know, actually, that's so, a good point because I, if you're talking about future civilizations, gen- yeah. aliens, whatever, I do feel like something more like Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, some, yeah. something there is probably better than, you know, like Bone Art. Thugs and Harmony? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although there is a part I of me that, hoping, that... I was hoping that's where Jason was going. I was really yeah. too. But there alas. is a part of me that wants to leave It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. just to see if, if the aliens also know the only words they know are Leonard Bernstein. That's the only reason. <laughs> My husband's answer would be anything from boys to men. He's not wrong. Yeah. Wow, says Jason. <laughs> Jason. Oh, you're so funny. If you would like to judge our music taste... If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record, an issue you think we should investigate, 
please send us an email and you can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. Dave Machuda is judging our music taste. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, our editor Dave Machuda, and of course Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson, and we'll be back again next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.